Welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Caroline Donahue, and I'm a novelist, a journalist, and a pagan single mother who believes in the restorative power of chocolate. Joining me is author, journalist, podcaster, and imaginary rabbit, Amy Jones, to talk about Joanne Harris's 1999 hit, Chocolat! Chocolat! <laughs> that is how you say it in France. Chocolat! <laughs> Plenty of guttural noise in the back you of the really throat. You really have to put that groan, that <laughs> sex, that oomph into it, don't you? You do. If you're not groaning when you're saying it, it's just not good. Chocolat! <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Amy, uh, welcome to the podcast. What made you choose this book? So this book, I think, was uh, the first grown-up book oh. that I ever thought, that this is like my favourite book now. Mm-hmm. It was like moving on from Harry Potter to Chocolat, basically. The natural progression of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very dark and grown-up and sexy, but also like fun and enjoyable and bingeable and everything that good chiclet should be. And also structured enough like a fairy tale so that like you can yes. go from child reading to adult reading. Very, It's a very good transitionary book. I think that so. Thing, I think. Um, my memories of this first reading this book, I probably was around 12 to 14, that mm-hmm. sort of area. Um, but my memories of it are so that uh, I was very sick with bronchitis, like really, really high temperature, couldn't concentrate on books. So mom got me this audio book from the library and I just lay on the couch with a flannel on my head listening to it, <laughs> like coming in and out of consciousness. And like as a result, the memories are very dreamy and coming back to it, it's like, oh, it is a very dreamy it's book. It's a very dreamy book. So I'm going to do the plot summary, though I'm sure pretty much everyone knows it from the movie. But let's do it anyway. It's the first day of Lent in a small French village and the single wandering Vienne has opened a chocolaterie. Together with her young daughter Anouk, she becomes both the subject and the creator of a lot of village gossip when it becomes clear that Vianne has no interest in attending church or towing the party line. As a campaign is led against her by the local priest, Reno, to run her and her pagan ways out of town, a war for the soul of this small place rages between them. I think I might have been high when I wrote that. <laughs> I feel like I made that needlessly complicated. Your pronunciations, I didn't realise you were fluent in French, Cara. You really should have let me prepare before this. Um, I said a chocolaterie. A chocolaterie. And not just chocolate shop, <laughs> which was my first urge. Um, so I think what's really cool about this book is that it is a book about chocolate and it's also not at all about chocolate. Yeah, I mean, the cho- you, you, I don't think you go more than a couple of pages and you get in like, these layers of, of chocolate and tobacco and all these wonderful senses that kind of make you feel a bit dizzy even reading it. But really, you could take the chocolate out and replace it with baseball and it would still be basically the same story. <laughs> right? I mean, but it's almost like the, um, the chocolate takes the place of a sex scene might take in, an, in, an, in a Mills and Boone romance novel. Do you know what I mean? Just in that it's full of it. <laughs> just, so it's just like, oh, she's really like... She's really she eating can, that chocolate. She's really... She can see the past and the future and, you know, it's just like <laughs> incredible and it's so sensuous, so aromatic and it's both a skill and an instinct, you know? It's just really lovely. And But what I love about it is that um, Vianne, she comes into this small town with this skill, with this thing that she can give to them, this chocolate. Chocolate, and they, they all all the villagers sort of flock round because they're curious and they kind of know that they shouldn't because it's Lent. Um, but then she becomes a symbol of something else, some kind of like pagan force. It's never just about chocolate. No, she is like a release for them in a, in a more social, a wider way. Would you agree? Yeah, completely. I was kind of making notes um, and rereading this as an adult. You know, when I first read it, I was actually, I was like, I said 13, 14. It's mm-hmm. actually in France on a French exchange. Oh, lovely. And picked it up from the house I was staying in. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was a lovely story about chocolate and a look at the magic and all that kind of thing. But rereading it with my grown-up woke hat on, mm-hmm. it's it's basically about like 
breaking out of the shackles of the patriarchy. Yeah. I think particularly, because Joanna said that this is quite a dark book and it really is. It, it deals with things, themes such as euthanasia and not and, and racism, I guess, and, with the, with the travelling community. Mm-hmm. But also there's the whole subplot with um, Josephine and Paul-Marie Mus- yeah. Muscat, um, where he's an abusive partner. He's, mm-hmm. He is beating the crap out of her um, and emotionally torturing her so she's too scared. And it's through Vianne that she finds a way of escaping from that. She's escaping the confines of what the patriarchy says. The, yeah. What And the patriarchy so perfectly described in terms of like a small village life where you have to be this kind of set role and you have to do these set things. And if you step out of line, then you're a yeah. freak. There's actually a bit... I've, I've, can I... Please do read. While Amy is looking, I want to note that uh, she has the authentic version with the beautiful purple <laughs> and the golden chocolate eggs. And I have the cheap, tacky uh, movie tie-in version, which is a real statement on where we're both coming from with it's, this book. <laughs> you're just, you know, you're not a true book fan. I just, I don't know how to read. <laughs> never <laughs> Did have. you just watch the film? It did. Okay, so it's, this is a part where um, Josephine hasn't yet broken away from her husband. Josephine clenched her fist against the counter. She seemed agitated, her voice cracking like frostbitten glass. Because she's mad, that's why. Mad, mad, mad. I'll tell you something. There's a line across Lansgenet, demonstrating on the counter with a calloused finger. And if you cross it, if you don't go to confession, if you don't respect your husband, if you don't cook three meals a day and sit by the fire thinking decent thoughts and waiting for him to come home, if you don't have children, if you don't bring flowers to your friend's funerals or vacuum the parlour or dig the flower beds, she was red-faced with the effort of speaking. Her rage was intense, enormous. Then you're crazy, you're crazy, you're abnormal and people talk about you behind your back. And just... Yes. She's so trapped by this role. She says later, you know, she dreamed of being a dancer and her life has become this cafe and this horrible husband who, if she speaks out of line, beats her. And and Vianne is her is her escape from that. And what is what's so heartbreaking and wonderful I think it happens at the end of that scene where she has that outburst and it's back when they they barely sort of know each Mm. other. And um, and Vianne says to her, you had nowhere to go before, but you have somewhere to go now. Yeah. And that is one of the most important things that I think people miss about domestic violence. Yeah. Is that that is the reason that people don't flee those relationships is because they ha- they generally have nowhere to go. And and you would think that, you know, Josephine, she's lived in this village her entire life. You would think there would be lots of people who was, she could go to and there's no one. And there's often like a lot of like everybody in the village knows, you know. There's a scene towards the end when um, Paul Marie is kind of revealed to be this you, there's a big showdown between them the entire mm-hmm. village watches and it's narrated from the point of of the cure I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm saying that right Reno. Reno. Um <laughs> sorry French people <laughs> <laughs> he narrates it and he says um, you know all through the book he's been talking about the fact that Josephine is being beaten but there's a bit where he says to know that a man beats his wife in secret but to see it is entirely different right. and it's the everyone in the village knows but it's seeing it suddenly like that's what makes it ungainly not the fact that she has welts over her face that she's too scared to leave the cafe on her own the fact that suddenly everyone's seen him like debase himself and, it, and she participates in the lie she she will do the whole like um, you know, walking into doors thing that yeah. everyone knows is untrue, but because she's maintaining the lie, every, it makes everyone much more comfortable and sort of anesthetized to their own wretchedness, you know? And making fun of her. There's the, the Bible groupies. As, yes. Uh, I love the Bible groupies who who make fun of her. You know, the first time we meet Josephine, she comes in after these women and they're all yeah. clucking and they're, they're laughing at her and her kind of her 
a protective stance. She protects her stomach at all this points. Fantastic thing where she um, she always has her fist balled into her stomach, yeah. and that's how she moves. And it's like such a brilliant like you. I don't need to know anything else physically about her because I can conjure everything else around that fist in her stomach. You know, the fact that Vian says when she's coming out of her shell, she kind of straightens up. But the second either Reno or her husband come in, straight away yeah. she makes herself ungainly and stupid because it's like that's the story they've told her. And yeah. Vian gives her a place to actually be brilliant because she is brilliant she's funny and she's sarcastic and she's hot she's really hot she's by the really sun. hot um obviously um chocolate is very famous for the film um and it's kind of it's, it's almost really hard to talk about them separately mm. because um they, they tangle up so much in my head um but i think one of the best rendered things from book to film was the actress who played josephine oh, she was amazing i have no idea who she is or what she did afterwards maybe she's really famous but but that whole scene where she's like, if you don't, da, 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 yeah. and if you don't, wipe under your husband's ass. <laughs> like, it's so good. And she does that brilliant sort of like transformation on yeah. screen. She really does become very beautiful. It feels um, like almost um, a domestic violence cool girl speech, if that makes sense. Yeah, a very yeah I do know what you mean. Yeah. yeah, a different role. The cool girl is obviously like playing into what's expected to be kind of cool and popular. But it's yeah. the whole thing about, no, this is the role you have to play in the narrow confines of what women are allowed to be. And what's what's this wonderful difference between Vianne and Josephine is that Josephine, um, she is different and she can't stop being different, but she punishes herself yeah. every day of her life because of it. And like um, as they're becoming friends, she goes to Vianne every day and she's like, do you know what they're saying about you? And Vianne has to keep repeating the same thing. It's almost like a prayer or a chant. She's like, I don't care. I just don't care because she's led she's led this whole life as this outsider. She was born an outsider. She didn't have the luxury of having a suburban town to disappoint. She was always moving around with her mother. And there she's like, she has to have to learn to not care as like this armadillo armor, you know? But it's a really interesting thing because I think she does care. I think one of the th- one of the things I love about Vianne is that while outwardly she makes all these changes and she seems very brave, you know, running around the world basically mm-hmm. with her daughter. Actually, she's terrified. She's terrified of this figure, the black man, which yeah. um, is that a tarot figure? It seems like a tarot. Not a tarot figure, but, but tarot comes up a lot Tarot in comes this. up a lot, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's very, very interesting and... Um, so for people who haven't read it, the black man stands for the church and it's sort of, it's, it refers to the priest. It's not like a weird racial slur. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a guy who tried to take Vianne from her mother when yes. she was younger. And since then, like, they've been running from the black man. And then she sees Reno as a modern version, like her personal black man who's coming in and trying to, like, not take a nook from her to her daughter a nook, yeah. but, you know, ruin her life, basically, ruin her standing. And she's very afraid of people turning against her and of, of having to keep fleeing in a way, even as she desperately thinks that she can't stay in one place. It's, it's a really evocative thing. And it, it, in, in that way, it is a book about mothers and inherited trauma, yes. isn't it? Because, um, I mean, the, Joanne Harris was like purposefully quite vague about the timeline because mm. sometimes it seems like it's in the 50s, but also they have like, um, you know, video recorders and things. So it could seem like the 80s as well. So it's quite vague. Um, but... Vianne's mother goes to the church because she has this sort of like crisis of confidence about whether she can raise Vianne alone and whether this is a right way to raise a child tearing her all over the world. She goes to um, a church, confesses, and then the black man, the priest, tries suggests that she he takes Vianne from yeah. her and tries to take Vianne from her. And like these things really happened. Mm-hmm. Like mother and baby homes. Like obviously Ireland is famous for them. We're mm. very good at them. Um, but it happened in France as well. And, you know, they've been happening ever since sort of the the mid nineteenth century. And like it's 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 fascinating to me how even though 
that wouldn't have existed for Vienna and Anouk. The fear and the shadow of that still exists mm. in their life. Even though really, even Vienna says herself, no one can do anything. But also, she has this, you know, it's you can't shake off inherited trauma, you know. No. That's all. It's just, yep, that's a, it's a great point. And I think it's very interesting that um, Anouk does, hasn't kind of inherited that yet, whether that's because she's not old enough, whether it's because Vianne is good at protecting her from it. But it's interesting the way that Anouk is so much braver and she, she sees someone... So there's a part at the start where the Bible groupies won't let their children play with Anouk because yeah. she's talking about Easter and kind of pagan rest festivals and things like that. And her first instinct is, I'm going to make a spell and I'm going to make my friends love me still and let them mums, let them play with me because of this spell. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a, such a bold move that perhaps Vianne would have made when she was younger before she kind of been aware of, of the black man and all this trauma. Yeah. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing how you grow into it almost. There's a... There's a it, magic has a really interesting place in this. I love the magic in this. It's so, so it's such much. good magic, you know. It's it's so commonplace. It's a fork of the fingers. It's a cantrip. It's like sage hanging from a red bag above a doorway. Yeah, it's, you know, banging a saucepan and saying out, out, out when you're feeling scared. It's it's scrying in chocolate. It's dreaming of a baby that you, you've just shagged a man and now you're like, yep, I'm pregnant. I'm going to dream of my baby for nine months. <laughs> like it's it's so unflamboyant. It's so utterly practical. It's very female. So female. It's like it's so domestic. It's so and like there's, there's there's many there's parts as well where like Anouk and Vianne look at each other and they're kind of like, now will we do a spell? And Vianne's like, no 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 not now. It's not this. It's not like a a thing where you can just pull a cord and solve a problem. Mm. It's never gonna. It's not going to change your life massively. I think that's why we mentioned Harry Potter earlier on, but like that's why the magic in the early Harry Potter books was always so compelling because mm-hmm. you, you you couldn't magic like a fortune for the Weasleys, yeah, but you could make the pot stir with on its own, you know. Yeah. And I think I love that sort of magic in books. And I think in Chocolat, what's great about it is that you've got this heavy, dark, masculine energy coming from the church, and then you've got a very feminine, domestic loving, forgiving energy coming from the sort of magic and they're kind of just clashing against each other the whole time. I think it's why I keep bringing the patriarchy up and I know I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to become that, that, like that person. Did you work for the pool there, Jess? <laughs> well, I did. Um, <laughs> sorry, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> no, it, it, the whole thing feels very masculine and feminine. Jo, uh, Harris has said in interviews and you can kind of see it that Renault and Vianne are two sides of the same coin. They both have these kind of ways they were brought up and mm-hmm. beliefs of how things should be. And essentially, they both want happiness or, or a good life for their friends slash followers. But Reno approaches it from such a male way of kind of rules and this is how things should be and obedience and intelligence and Whereas Vianne's much simpler and is just, let's have some chocolate. Let's, yeah. Let's just hang out and let's be nice to each other. Let's do some dancing and eat some pancakes. <laughs> and there's all these bits where, and like, I love how, um, especially in Renault's early chapters, he's looking from essentially his window, looks down onto her square kind of thing outside of her house. And he's obsessed with her. And he's yeah. like, I hardly thought of her at all today, except I did all day. I watched her nonstop for three days. And yeah, and he yeah. is, um, he's always looking at her and she's like, and she seems to know everyone's name already. And everyone's seems to like her and someone gave her a deal on some furniture and like what is this and I've been living here my whole life and no one treats me this way and it really reminds me of like um, I think we talk a lot about you know male skills and female Mm. skills and I I put both of those terms in huge inverted commas it's all societal yeah Yeah. but I do think that um, 
sorry, this is kind of a pet theory of mine. So okay. excuse me for a while. Um, so we talk, we talk a lot about like, oh, we need more women in engineering. We need more women in STEM. We need more women doing these things that have typically been you know taken over by, by male energy. And that's true. We do need those things. But I think we also forget how important soft skills are. Like remembering people's birthdays yes. <laughs> or emailing someone for work and then see, and then adding a thing being like, um, oh, I saw that you got a puppy on Instagram. Uh, looks really cute. I know my puppy sucked at times. Hope, oh, oh, <laughs> hope you're getting some sleep. Anyway, here's my pitch. Da, 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 here's my invoice. And that's sort of like that primping and mm-hmm. being aware of people and seeing people and noticing people yep. is something that women are so good at, and which is why every successful freelancer I know is a woman. <laughs> I think there's, yeah, and I think we, like you said, we say women need to do what men are doing. And we've had books like Girl Boss and Lean In and stuff saying, no, women should be speaking in a male way. Yeah. Well, actually, no, maybe the men should be speaking in this this feminine way because actually it makes makes the world nicer. Right? I that th- is what this book is, though. Oh, my God. It, there's, there's a bit where there's um, Guillaume, who is this guy who has this dog, mm-hmm. um, and the dog is very ill Charlie. at the start. Charlie. And Reno is very dismissive and doesn't believe that dogs have souls and is like, Guillaume, get over it because he can't. Imagine why you would love a dog. Or anything. It? Or anything. He's yeah. not a nice man. Um, and Guillaume is actually saying, like, what do you believe, Jan? And she goes through all this folklore and all this magic and, you know, all these pagan festivals. And actually, all she believes is you should do what makes you happy. Yeah. It's literally the whole thing of the book. And she talks so frequently about one of the reasons she loves chocolate is that it isn't using her mother's powers and magic to, like, reach in and grant wishes. Mm-hmm. It's just giving someone a chocolate almond that makes them happy for a little bit. Just a bite of something pure and good and beautiful and lovely that makes someone's life a little bit better for a second. And the whole book is just full of it, and I love it. It's, and it's just like the whole thing of like pleasure is important. Yes. It is not something that you fit around the sides of your life, you know? Right. It is a thing you incorporate into your life. You know, it's like, you know, it's getting that sort of cup of hot chocolate in the morning before you go to work. It's like integrating it. And I think... I actually, I, we also just finished doing Eat, Pray, Love for the podcast. And there's a bit in Eat, Pray, Love, I don't know if you've ever read it, um, where she talks about how Americans don't understand pleasure. And what they would rather do is um, just work themselves to death and then stand on Saturday morning in the middle of the kitchen eating cereal with their hands because they don't know how to come down off of that work and, yeah. and, and derive it into pleasure. Whereas Italians will very easily just be like, they work very hard, but they work so they can have a huge plate of pasta yeah. and enjoy every mouth of it and have everything, all the garlic, you know, sourced well and, and everything, everything be beautiful, you know? Yeah. And I, I think we are also very bad at that. Yeah. Of having little pockets of beauty that aren't marginalized, but that are central and part of the whole recipe of life. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that strikes you switching from Vianne's chapters to Reno's chapters is that when Vianne is talking, she talks about um, the bright yellow coat with the green daisies that she wears or the fluffy cap pressed on the nook's mm. head or going to see the, the river travelers and like all the lights strung up and how beautiful everything looks or the bright white awning with the red geraniums cheerfully mm. bobbing. It is pleasure and beauty seeping into every inch of what she does. She's not just walking down the street. She's feeling the wind in her hair and whipping at her skirt. It's taking joy in wherever she can. And it's 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 a very inspiring way to it live, is. honestly. It almost reminds me of... Um, there's a lot of similarities here with the film Pleasantville. Do you remember yes. that movie? Yes, I love that film. Which was a movie about these you know, two teenagers who are brought into this black and white 1950s society. And then um, I think basically Reese Witherspoon teaches them how to fuck. <laughs> and, then, and then everything starts becoming there's in colour. There's an amazing scene yeah. where she teaches her mum how to masturbate. 
and they're like, yeah. she has a she has a wank in the bath, and then a tree <laughs> catches fire outside when she orgasms. It's just I didn't understand that when I watched it at eight when I was eight years old, and I was like, oh no, that's yeah, that's a metaphor and a half. That is what yeah, no, because I think basically what she was doing was sort of putting her self under the uh, hot tap <laughs> really Basically, she, she gets in the water and I thought at first she was just having a bath and like really enjoying really her bath. enjoying the bath <laughs> but um, no she does teach everyone to have sex and enjoy themselves but yeah it's the same but it's the exact same thing yeah. in chocolate it's just like everything she touches slowly like blooms of colour comes to it <sighs> such you know? a great film it's so everything is everything is good <laughs> <laughs> But I think sex is a huge thing in this as well. There's only one sex scene and it's quite tame. Right. I kept waiting for more sex scenes. Yeah. Because for some reason I thought there would be. But but as I said, the chocolate sort of does that job for it. Yes. Um, but I think... Okay, so Reno... This is kind of going back a few steps. Reno kind of reminds me of an incel. Oh my God. Massive incel. Correct. Yeah. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) So incels, for anyone who doesn't know, these people on Reddit who are just furious that they can't get laid. And they kind of, they hate women for being stupid and not having sex with them and only being interested in chads who are like Yeah, they categorize women as being like Beckys and Cindy's and like... What they they yeah they live in a very very limited world where women exist to serve them and if they're not doing that then they're defective yeah you know and and by the way incel stands for involuntarily celibate so you'll get where that's coming from reading through it again having this kind of new frame of reference he really is he is an incel he is he's furious at women for existing he hates the idea of sex it's clear that he's a virgin you know mm-hmm. Catholic priest fine but the yeah. whole way through he he refers to again I'm going to find. My bit. But whenever he's talking about Vian and her chocolate shop, he's referring to like his mother's boudoir and things like that. He's really obsessed with the idea. Real mother hatred. Real mother hatred. Here we go. Um, I went to see her the other day. The place is transformed, the air perfumed with bewildering scents of ginger and spices. I tried not to look at the shelves of sweets, boxes, ribbons, bows in pastel colours, sugared almonds and gold silver drifts, sugared violets and chocolate rose leaves. There is more than a suspicion of the boudoir about the place, an intimate look, a scent of rose and vanilla. My mother's room had just such a look, all crepe and gauze and cut glass twinkling in the muted light, the ranks of bottles and jars on her dressing table, an army of genies awaiting release. There is something unwholesome about such a concentration of sweetness, a promise half fulfilled of the forbidden. I try not to look, not to smell. Right. I mean, that's just just jizz right there all over the place, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's a bit as well where he talks about the scent of her shop and says it's like the scent of the nape of a woman's neck where the hair meets the skin. Jesus. It's just kind of get over yourself. You want a banger. Like, and don't yeah. be angry at her for that. Like, he's so furious that he, this man who is like refusing all temptation, fancies this woman and he sees her as evil for it. That's so, yeah, he is just sort of taking everything bad that he hates within himself and projecting it onto this single mother. It's very um, Esmeralda. I was thinking that too, but I didn't want to make another extraneous reference. It is, it's very, um, I mean, my only experience of Lunchback and Notre Dame is of course the cartoon. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) But that that whole thing The song where he sees her dancing in the flames and he's like clutching at her clothes. Yeah, and he kind of resolves by the end of the song that um, if if he can't have her, he has to kill her. He has to burn her, yeah. Right? And like, 
that's one of those things where, you know how you always think like, oh, men and women are the same, really. <laughs> and then it's like, I've never wanted to fuck so much, so much I wanted to kill them. You know no, it's I mainly mean? like staying at home and logging in and out of my space to see if I'll talk right? to you. Yeah. Like, our, our, our crushes are so tame <laughs> by, by comparison. What does men feel? <laughs> they're so passionate. Like, I, I, I've definitely felt like I fancy someone so much I want to eat them. Yes, I'm familiar with that feeling. But not, I wouldn't kill them. It's not their fault that they don't love me, <laughs> you know? I'm not going to punish them. The thing is, if someone doesn't fancy me back, I have so much internalised hatred from the patriarchy. Yes. I'd be like, that's a good move. Yes, yes. <laughs> you don't Solid. want a slice of this. That's, that's why I like you. you clearly got a good head on them shoulders. Yeah, my, but, my vagina smells and I'm allowed to be around. <laughs> These boobs look good, but they're just they're just too much. They're just getting in the they're way. They're heavy and sore. I complain a lot about I them. I do complain a lot about them. Anyway, um, so, so you, Reno... You live your life. <laughs> Continue. But Reno is not like that. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a baddie man. He's a bad, bad man. We, we touched on something there that I'd love to talk about more, which is um, the role of mothers in this book. Yes. Um, you know that a character is going to be a major character if they have a complicated relationship with their mother. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, so we've got... Or indeed um, in this book, if they are the mother who has the complicated relationship yes. with their daughter. So you've got Caroline and Caroline and Armand. Mm. This very, by the way, annoys me because there has never been a Caroline or a Caroline in literature who wasn't a cunt. Oh, Mine, really? They're all with Caroline Bingley as well yeah. in Pride and Prejudice. Um, probably more. <laughs> <laughs> Just two, but two solid examples. There's more, but yeah. There's often like... Um, in like 19 sort of 30s 1940s society novels there's always some asshole called Caroline behind a martini glass or a fan just saying something <laughs> mean <laughs> which I realise is my place at parties but you I mean, know I'm still. basically Amy from Little Women so you know I think you at least you get to be a fun bitch I'm just a bitch everyone hates me I love Amy from Little Women but that's a conversation for a different day okay <laughs> um, but yeah back to the, the mother's thing so um, there's Caro and Armand mm-hmm they are this mother-daughter combo that Armand is this sort of older, witchy kind of woman that kind of has this weird sixth sense and kind of communicates with people on a weird level. But she's also very sort of bawdy and loud and just a legend, really. She's played by Judy Dench having a cracking time in the Having film. a cracking time. Um, and then Caro is uh, incredibly tight. What's the word? Tight-arsed. Tight-arsed? Tight-arsed. Um, she's, you know... She's very, very, very into the church, and but but only as a means for social hierarchy. She yeah. doesn't truly care about God. She wants to impress the priest, yeah, and she wants to always have like you know, social capital, social basically. capital, etc. Yeah. Um, so that's one sort of mother daughter pairing. Then we have Vian and her mother, who I don't think is named, but she basically always lives in the shadow of her dead mother, mm-hmm. who um, never really gave her any sort of domestic life but she is absolutely adores and she was always running from something she always had her tarot cards out yeah. always moving on because she was afraid something was going to catch up with her also kidnapped her yeah that's kind of thrown in at the end that yeah what's that about <laughs> I think that's part of the reason she runs so much is that Vianne was kidnapped yeah I, I kind of thought when I got to that passage that maybe I had read it wrong or no, something no it's it's, it's Something I always forget because it's never referenced before or after. Yeah. Anyway, yep. <laughs> Joanne, you know, please let us know what that was about. <laughs> um, yeah, then we have Renault and mm-hmm. his mother. Yep. The twist with that is that he had this quite, you know, sexually flagrant mother and is therefore a very um, conservative man. Yeah. Um, so it seems like everybody in this book reacts in opposition to what their mother was. 
which is very real, right? Yes. <laughs> everyone, everyone I know is trying so hard not to like live their mother's life, and everybody I know is their mother. You yeah. know, but it's an interesting thing that the echoes of how those relationships pass down generationally as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you see a lot into um, the past that Vian had with her mother, mm-hmm. and the whole. Um, her mother used to cling to her and kind of chant, what will I do without you? How can I live without you? How can I cope without you? Yeah. And then she's seeing that with a nook when a nook shows any kind of, not even rebellion, just independence. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. And then you kind of get the same thing with, so you've got Armand and Caro, and then you've got Caro and Luke, her son. Yeah. And like Luke and Armand are so much closer than either of them had with that relationship with Caro in the yeah, middle. Yeah. But it's like that, like you said, you do the opposite of what your mother wanted you to do, tells you to do. And it's, I think, complicated relationships. If you have a complicated relationship with your mother, you don't know how to not have a complicated relationship with your child, if that makes sense. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you often get this with Vianne as well. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not a mother, so I don't really know. um, But Vianne, sometimes she can't even, like, look at Luke because just her heart will break with just how much she loves her. How much she's afraid of losing her. And she just just wants to sort of touch her all the time. She's just paralyzed by fear sometimes, the idea that a life might exist. Yeah, it's like she'll she'll be living her life normally and then suddenly just be overcome with the fear that somebody will take a nuke from her. Which I feel like might be what being a mother is. Sounds horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So... um, But on on the other hand, though, fathers might as well not exist. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is quite a significant father figure in the book in mm-hmm. terms of um, the... F- so when we when we hear Renaud, he's talking to someone he calls père, which is French for father, but it's it's like a religious father. And there's yeah. this person who's been in a coma who kind of guided him and taught him. We're doing, he, we're doing spoilers, so you can... We're doing massive spoilers, sorry yeah. here. Um, and ultimately, like, disappointed him. Mm-hmm. But also... I don't know. It's interesting you say fathers might not exist because there's two main, I think, father-son relationships, which is uh, Paul-Marie Muscat's father. Yes, which we don't get a lot of. You don't get a lot of, but what you do get seems to be quite significant. And that, mm-hmm. Again, we're talking about how you learn how to have a relationship with your child from your mother. He clearly learned how to have a relationship with his loved ones from his father because his father was as abusive and awful and horrible as he was. Mm-hmm. This actually reminds me of something that my friend Harry Harris, who did the jingle, hi yeah. Harry, hi Harry, um, said to me recently, and I haven't really stopped thinking about it since, which is that, and I might get this wrong, it's like, you need a mother there every day of your life mm. to have a mother, but you can build a good father out of two key moments. Ooh. <laughs> and that's so true, isn't it? Like, you know, your mother's are basically known for their constancy, right? Yeah. They are there every day, breakfast table, after school, whatever. I mean, obviously everybody has different situations, but that is kind of the, the industry standard, isn't it? It's for the mothers. role. Yeah. It's the role. And whereas people, when they think about, talk about, write about, make art about their father, it's a bit like, and I remember this one conversation I had with my father. I was 11, he was 50. <laughs> and it's like every John Mulaney sketch ever. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and it's like, and uh, I infused all of this meaning and all mm. of this stuff with this one conversation. And I have built my entire relationship out of my father from that moment. And that is very true in this as well, I think. Yeah. I mean, there are two moments, really, that you hear about with Renaud and his his père. And yeah. that is um, him him shagging his mum, spoiler. And as in his his père. His, his religious father. Yeah, like his church. religious tutor. Yeah, yeah shagging his mum. And kind of the disappointment he feels 
in that and that the betrayal of everything. And then you find out very shortly after that revelation that the betrayal was that, like, because of what the religious father wanted, like, Reno burnt down, like, he killed people. He burnt yeah, down he a bunch of people. boats. Yeah. And, like, compromise. he says he compromised his soul for him. And then to find out that his father was fallible and capable of sin. I think yeah. he even says it wasn't even the sex or the fact you were having sex with my mum. It's the fact that I saw you as this ideal, this, like, block of concrete, this yeah. perfect, holy thing. And actually you're capable of sin and like the disappointment that he feels and how he's almost seemed to spend his life trying to live up to what his religious father should have been. Yeah. And couldn't have been. And couldn't have been because you're just a man. Yeah. You sin. There's even a point um, where he says something like, how could I convince her that I wasn't like Muscat? I wasn't even a man. I was a priest, a whole different category. Like he literally doesn't even see himself as a man. He would be happier dickless. He would so be happy at <laughs> He's really angry at the statue as well. Of like, he's, he's he, there's a statue of Saint Francis which mm-hmm. he's named after, and like he's always angry that it looks like a man rather than this, yeah. like rather than a saint. Like he's a smiley man full of covered in pigeons. Yeah, yeah. It just infuriates him, and it's like, dude, men like pigeons sometimes. Come on, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and there's this thing of like. Um, you know, St. Francis is sort of like the, uh, you know, the child-friendly saint. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, he likes animals, he likes people, likes forgiveness, likes charity. And he's like, no, be more hardcore. <laughs> Just hate people. Yeah. I think that's such a big theme in the book as well. I mean, there's this whole section, again, I think it's between Guillaume and Vian. Vian, I can't, I'm sorry. I know, I love how we're like kind of partially committing to French <laughs> and then other times not committing at all. I did A-level <laughs> French and everything, I should know better than oh, wow. this. But it's talking about what makes a good and bad Christian. Because part of the reason that um, Renault is so hates Vianne is because he's convinced that um, he's she's tempting all these people away from their good Christianity, mm. whether that's tempting them away from Lent. But also, you know, she's he's furious at her for giving Josephine a place to escape domestic violence because it's yeah. ruining the sanctity of marriage and everything should be about, like, obedience and, and listening. And he doesn't actually give a shit if it's the right thing to do or not. He just wants good Christians which I know he's I know he's a reverend but like yeah it's that rigid inflexibility and that's his downfall is the yeah. thing because there was definitely a world whereby people went to the chocolate shop and also to church you know I mean, absolutely. that would have been fine but and even there's these bits where um, I can't remember the character's name but there's this um, minor character who's a farmer and who couldn't go to mass during the harvest because he has to do his fucking Narcisse. harvest yeah Nicis. Um and there's no forgiveness no clemency about that it's like no, no you come to church I found the passage. I'm going to read it to you again. Guillaume gave a little smile, as he does when he's about to say something he considers daring. I love Guillaume so much. (laughs) I love the fact that he doesn't watch films, but is addicted to film magazines. I know, it's it's such a small detail. Anyway, um, I sometimes wonder, he said reflectively, whether Narcisse isn't a better Christian in the purest sense than me or Georges Clermont or even Chiorino. He took a mouthful of his chocolate. I mean, at least Narcisse helps, he said seriously. He gives work to people who need the money. He lets gypsies camp on his land. Everyone knows he was sleeping with his housekeeper for all those years, and he never bothers with church except as a means of seeing his customers. But at least he helps. I uncovered the dish of religieuse and put one on his plate. I don't think there's such a thing as a good or bad Christian, I told him. Only good or bad people. I think at a very impressionable age, that was like the main message I took from this. Mm. I think up to that point, I'd been I was quite religious as a, as a kid. Really? Like, prayed every night. Um, and I think this was one of the first times that I was... What religion were you? Just, like, bog-standard Christian. Yeah. I Protestant. Think, singing in church. Great. All that kind of jazz. Um, 
And it kind of, it was the first thing that made me realize actually Christianity can be quite mean. <laughs> it's a mean it's religion. Pretty inflexible. Yeah. And you know, you look at the good that Vien or Narcisse or any of those people mm. do in their communities and how actually evil Renaud is because of his acts. And it's not the church that's evil. I think the film does a very good job of like they they make Renaud's character the, the mayor, I think, rather than the vicar. Yeah. And yeah. at the end you get this lovely sermon from the Reverend about kind of kindness and tolerance and things mm -hmm. like that and which is what the church should be about because like Guillaume says it's not being a Christian just means helping and being yeah. nice to people it's a real kind of life shaking thing for me at that point that actually morality doesn't have to come from what the rules say they have to come from that's so interesting um I, I had a similar sort of religious response to the book in that like um I recognize a lot of the saints and a lot of the stuff mm -hmm. um because uh, a group of Catholic. Sorry, uh, this season we're talking about religion a lot. By the way, we've done this is like the third time this has happened. Um, but I loved it for a lot of my childhood because I loved the ritual and I loved the incense and I loved how everyone had a job mm. and I loved the sort of a whole idea of bread into wine and the bit where he just like wipes up the silverware at the end. <laughs> And, uh, I just I just loved all the bits, you yeah. know. Um, Nothing and brings me more joy, even to this day, than a good Chris Dingle service. Right? Just so, just a little orange with some dolly mixtures in it. Just it's so, so it's cheering. All, like, Everyone coming that, together. All that stuff. It's so exciting, isn't it's it? It's lovely, yeah. Um, not even lovely, just exciting, you know. <laughs> I think I think maybe it's, it's, it's a bit harsher in Catholic churches, you know. It's a lot more... <laughs> da -da -da -da, you know? Um, but... I, then I, I sort of fell out of love with God because, you know, you find out everything he did. And, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and then when I was a teenager, I gravitated completely towards magic and I basically mm. stayed there with like tarot cards and crystals and stuff because it's like all my love of camp ritual just sort of transferred onto like magic. Yeah. Um, but there's so much of that. There's so much of that ritual here. She, there's a big section yeah. where she talks about tempering chocolate, taking the raw cacao. And kind oh, of I love it. those bits. Oh, and she talks about, I don't know if you've ever worked with raw chocolate. It's really fun. No. You kind of have to raise it to a certain heat and it gets really glossy and thick and then you cool it slightly and then you raise the heat again and then you can pour it onto like a marble slab and you move it back and forth. Oh, wow. This is very soothing just hearing about Thank it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets, you know, really shiny and then malleable and you can make these perfect little curls. And the way that she talks about it, it is a ritual. She says that, you know, this is the kind of magic that she loves. She learned all this flamboyant burning candles and sage and incense and that kind of making a salt circle with salt and bread from her mother. Mm. And her mother would have hated this this chocolate making ritual, but to her, it's kind of a very pure form of that same space, that same yeah. feeling, that same, this is what you do. And it's it's calming and it's beautiful and and it is very soothing. And you're you're a cook yourself, and you're a food writer. Mm. And um, mm. has, has did this book do a lot to encourage that feeling mm. towards cooking? I did my uh, so Joanna Harris and a French cookery writer released a French cookbook, and I did my GCSE oh, <laughs> cooking exam, final exam based on the recipes. Oh wow! What were the recipes? Um, I can't remember most of them, but I know that uh, the dessert was delicious. It was like cherries and a little bit of kiel with. Um, French bread sliced up really thick and soaked in butter oh. and milk and like cinnamon and nutmeg and oh then you my fry gosh. it and you pour the cherries over the top. It was really sexual. Fanning myself like a lady in church. <laughs> um, so 
Okay, generally at the end of the podcast, I ask uh, about like what cinema adaptations people would like, but obviously this one's already been done. So actually what I'd like to ask you is like, what is, as a cook, what is sort of the recipe people should make while reading chocolate? Like what is the chocolate recipe they can do in like less than an hour that is going to be like the great compliment with this? <laughs> <laughs> I have to put you on the spot, I think. Um... I'm gonna I'm gonna actually briefly before I before I answer your excellent question, mm. talk about the food in this that isn't chocolate. Mm. There is a whole scene where she prepares this really lavish multi-course dinner to celebrate Armand's 81st birthday, and the food in it is spectacular. Now in the film, I think they ruined this because mm. they show this beautiful they show all the cooking and they show this beautiful like lavish garden and everything. But then they have like roast chicken legs and they're pouring chocolate over it, mm. which is nonsense and that does not sound good um, <laughs> because actually the whole thing is Vian has always seen magic in normal cooking, you know, when she's mm. traveling, she can't keep souvenirs. So she tears recipes and menus and things like that. And and it's that food that, food itself has magic for not just chocolate, you know. Chocolate is just sexier and a mm. bit more witchy and you've got all the little nerds in here. But um, there's this entire, there's this amazing meal which has like fish and soups and herb salads and it's just divine. And I would read the book just for that one section, which is right and at the end. And it's so long as oh, well. Oh, it's so long. It's one of the longest passages in the book. Yeah, and like literally no paragraph breaks. It's like, and here's all the food. It's amazing. And it's... It's like, it felt like Harris was like swept up herself into it so that she couldn't even like press enter. She's no. just like... Oh. And there's you said at the start that this book feels dreamy, and I think that's one of the dreamiest passages because she's not just talking about the food; she's talking about you know Zazette and her beautiful baby, which is mottled in henna and has these grey green eyes and this green skin, sucking shabbily off a finger, mm. and you know a nook demanding sugar cubes soaked in booze because she can't have it and Mm. you know how Caroline is getting her hairs falling out and she's looking young and her eyes flickering in the candlelight it's it's a really hot scene just yeah and and with no one really even touching so much you know no George like grabs her like gooses her under the table a couple of times (laughs) (laughs) but apart from that um but to answer your earlier question though the thing I would make is a chocolate fondant they are no. super easy to make. You basically, you whisk up egg white. In terms of keeping, in keeping with the idea of like simple ritual, but something that's actually quite magic, like greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Uh, if you make like a, a melt in the middle chocolate fondant, you get ones, you like whisk up the egg whites until they're fluffy and then you melt chocolate and egg yolk and butter and you fold the two together and then you just Ooh. put them in a ramekin in the oven and they, they kind of puff up, <gasps> but then you turn them out onto a plate and you put your spoon in oh. and they're gooey and they like melt in the middle. It's it's so simple, but it tastes so decadent and special. The whole thing about this book is it's not the kind of the cheap chocolate. It's 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 a moment of decadence, mm. and I think chocolate fondants are for that for me. So I'll talk a little bit about Rue, and only because we've gone so long discussing this book without mentioning him at all, and he's the romantic lead. I think. Men are not important in this. No, it's not that important. <laughs> you said fathers aren't important. Men aren't really important as well. Rue's specific purpose is to get her knocked up at the end. Yeah. It, it, and it's weird because um, at the beginning um, she says, and I used to love this when I was a kid and I still love it now, where she doesn't remember who Anouk's father is and she yeah. doesn't care. And she's just like, one of my many dalliances. I think it's like plucked like so many like daisy chains or something. Like I could have um, peeled an apple and tossed the the peel over my shoulder at midnight to find out his initial but I didn't care for it how cool is that I waste the apple you know yeah exactly Um, it just doesn't matter it's always felt it feels like a very female centric book even there are male characters in there but what's important is their like their relationship if that makes sense 
Totally, they're, yeah. They're like they're, fem- they're female, and I'm using big air quotes here, vulnerabilities, like Guillaume and Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Rue is just, just an angry man. <laughs> He's just... An angry man is angry about his boat being burned. Yep. Which and is I, fair. That's, you know, I feel for man, but also I don't care. Yeah. It's kind of like, and I, you know, apologies to Joanne if this wasn't it at all, but it's kind of like she knew she needed to have a romantic hero mm-hmm. because that's what books like this have. But all the sex is depends within the chocolate. Mm-hmm. So you actually don't feel that urge that you often do when you're reading like a romance book, when you're mm-hmm. kind of waiting for a sex scene to come up. And all of the sort of like intimate intimacies happen between Try women. Me, test me, taste me. Yeah, that's, that's happening between like Mocha with Chantilly curls. Yes, like, yeah, sipped yeah. over in a, in a New York style bar stool while whispering secrets to each other. Totally, like, it's very seductive, but it's like a feminine girls seducing so each other. It way. almost kind of um, not in a lesbian way, but yeah, like in a, but yeah, they are sort of seducing each other yeah. through kind of that very female way of like confidences and. Yeah. you know, favours and that kind of thing. And and it sort of makes Rue almost, it's like, what's he for? Yeah. I think he's very important in terms of the whole plot around the outsiders and how they're treated. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the romancy bit was, and kind of thrown in, because all the way through she says that he should be with Josephine. Yeah. Even after they have sex, she's like, he's going to be with Josephine. And then they bang. <laughs> and then they bang, yeah. That's just it. Yeah. It, I think it's played out much better in the film. He, he makes more sense. Because it's young Johnny Depp. Before we knew how terrible Johnny oh, Depp was. Young Johnny Depp was the best Johnny Depp. This is his hottest thing, I yeah, think. Yeah, I agree. I think you can tell a lot about a woman by which Johnny Depp she fantasizes about. And for me, it's the chocolate <laughs> Johnny Depp. playing a guitar on a houseboat. Oh, with the sort of like the waving of the flames just yeah. on the... Dancing in his eyes. The uh, bit where after... Because they have sex in a different time in the film. Mm-hmm. Um... And kind of he gets up after having sex with her and he like pings his braces back up. Oh my god. It's so hot. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, and like and like he has a weirdly bad Irish accent, but also I don't care. Um, <laughs> and he's like, um, I'll come back at that squeak at your door. And you're like, yeah. he'll get that squeak You'll at my door, right? And add a few more while you're there. <laughs> and there's a, I think him and Juliette Binoche's is that her name? Yeah, yeah. Julia Binoche. And um, their chemistry is so good, especially because I think she's a little bit older than him in the film. Yes. Or she seems like she is anyway. And uh, he comes and he's like, oh, get the squeak out your door. And she's like, oh, that is very nice, but they insist on paying you. And he's like, that's very good. I insist on being paid. And you're like, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> you business flirting. Business. I love a business flirt. I love I'm a, a business flirt. old-fashioned capitalist that way. <laughs> I don't know if you've read the sequels to Shaka. I haven't. There are two sequels currently and there's a third sequel, like a fourth book in this series. Yes, coming very soon, actually. Very, very soon. Which was very embarrassing because I've interviewed Joanne already and uh, she had to tell me that's coming out and I was What's like, oh. What's it called? The Strawberry Thief? Yes. I think. I think. Um, in the second one, Rue kind of pops back and is like mm. a more, a long-term love interest. Um which almost disappointed me because I like I liked the whole idea that Liam didn't need no man. She was yeah. there with her daughter having casual sex and making chocolate. Sure. And she was happy with that. But it's no. Good, good lot in life. Um, well, it's time to go and I guess go. Do you want to go get a hot chocolate? Like right now? Right now. I would like Please. to do that right now. And I know it's not the chocolate that they talk about, but a bar of dairy milk to dip into the hot chocolate. Yes. Maybe eat some whipped cream with a bar of dairy milk. Let us see to that immediately. Um, but in the meantime, tell me about your book coming out. Tell me about your podcast. Tell me about all your things. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I have a book coming out in July. Um, mm. It's called The To-Do List and Other Debacles. What's that about then? It's about uh, being in your 20s and feeling like you have to achieve, 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 because that's what 
you've been taught your entire life mm -hmm. and you kind of now measure your worth on how well you're doing compared to all your other friends. But Amy, there's nothing else. There's nothing else in life. Um, <laughs> there's nothing else. And then having, I only have that. <laughs> well, I think we all do. Mm. Um, and then uh, the main character has a bit of a breakdown. Um, and by that, I mean she tries to commit suicide on a hen party because haven't we all wanted to do that? Mm -hmm. And uh, has to come to terms with the fact that she's okay the way she is. But with jokes. <laughs> I, I don't know, they're very good jokes. You're a very good jokes. I talk about uh, penises and we quite a lot. So good. it's a really highbrow book. I'm... Delighted. I think we had this conversation though. It's got a pink cover, and I really freaked out about a pink cover mm -hmm. for a while. Um, about the fact that it would be chiclet. It took me a while to be like, you know, fuck what? Fuck you know, it, it is chiclet. chiclet. Chiclet's great. Look at this book. This is chiclet. Yeah, all these books are fucking chiclet. I mean, do you know what though? Joanne Harris wrote this. There's like three books that are called her food trilogy. There's this, Five Quarter of the Orange, and Blackberry Wine. Mm -hmm. And there's no way you'd class the other two as chiclet. And I realised it's because Blackberry Wine is narrated by a man and about wine and the other one's about Nazis because this is mm. about chocolate it's just girly chocolate and it never got the prestige that it deserved I think because it was seen as so overtly feminine despite the fact that it is talking about like euthanasia and yeah. prejudice and racism and well I mean it was called the best book ever written by the literary review <laughs> Okay, so it got, it got some praise, <laughs> but no, I think it has been sidelined as being a chick book. Yeah, which it is, and I don't care. <laughs> and it's still great. Anyway, sorry, that was a real side thing. Um, yeah, that's coming out in July, mm -hmm. um, and then my podcast is called "And Then What." Uh, it's a podcast all about stories. Um, again, completely, we talk about penises and and we quite a lot, right? But also about feminism and all kinds. make each other laugh it's yeah. great I've you should come on it I've learned an awful lot and I will come on it great <laughs> <laughs> okay Amy thank you so much for coming on you've been a delight you are a delight this has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue you can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell.